Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the United States remains the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, a concerted effort by lawmakers, their funders, and corporate media blames China for the U.S. failure to protect its own population. I don't understand this whole focus on China, a country that has effectively contained the virus, instead of actually looking right here at home, which is where we should be criticizing. And with 26 million Americans filing for unemployment benefits in the last five weeks and promised government aid slow to arrive or not arriving at all, organizers on the left say that it's time for a real political revolution. Workers can come together in a necessary way because if not, then the vacuum is going to be filled by the fascist demagogues that are part of the right wing of the Republican Party who we've seen already go into the streets. But, you know, it's imperative that the alternative of organized progressive forces be a growing force in society. Otherwise, the direction that we're going in, I mean, it's pretty clear. These stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Ivarum. Wildcat strikes and walkouts by Amazon workers are occurring around the United States as the workers protest lack of personal protection equipment during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hundreds of hourly workers at dozens of facilities around the U.S. stayed home from work this week. Their actions defying a company intimidation campaign are winning the support of tech and white-collar workers at Amazon, who, according to reports, plan to hold a sick out and an online discussion with warehouse workers today as we go to broadcast on Friday, April 24th. According to Johns Hopkins University, nearly 50,000 deaths from COVID-19 have occurred in the U.S. And laboring in the midst of the pandemic, Amazon workers are risking both their lives and those of their families. In addition to lack of adequate personal protective equipment, workers say that there is no mass testing that would allow for more effective treatment of asymptomatic workers and that Amazon is not transparent about the number of positive cases in the workforce. Of course, nurses also on the front line of the pandemic are still not receiving the protective gear they need to work safely around patients. Keeping the necessary physical distance Members of the National Nurses United Union rallied in front of the White House on Tuesday for the government to enforce work safety standards. They also read the names of at least 48 nurses who have died during this pandemic. Erica Jones read a statement from the group calling out Trump for failing health care workers and the nation. We are contracting this deadly virus in large numbers because our government and our hospital employers have failed to provide us with the optimal personal protective equipment that we need. When we get sick, who will take care of our patients? Weeks ago, our nurse colleagues in Italy and Spain, where the pandemic had spread out of control, warned us that our hospitals in their countries had become disease vectors. And now, that is what is happening in America. Instead of being places of healing, hospitals have also become places of infection. And the United States government has let this happen. According to documents posted at their website, National Nurses United petitioned the Occupational Safety and Health Administration 
on March 4th for an emergency temporary standard that would provide protective equipment for healthcare workers during the pandemic, but received no response. Wednesday was the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And in addition to celebrating Earth and the efforts of environmentalists, it served as a kickoff to what activists say will be days of action. Lydia Curtis has more. From Earth Day on April 22nd to May Day, May 1st is being staked out by activists from across the United States as a time to organize in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Global virtual actions on Earth Day are being followed on Saturday, April 25th with U.S. car caravans under the hashtag and website Cancel the Rent. New York Communities for Change is one of the many groups planning actions. They're organizing a rent strike and introducing legislation to protect communities devastated by COVID-19. In the District of Columbia, Shutdown D.C. is planning a series of web events and in-person actions ranging from a caravan of cars and bikes that, quote, confront the politicians and corporate executives that put our communities at risk, unquote, to the creation of a massive mural. More information is at shutdowndc.org. Finally, on May 1st, International Workers' Day, organizations including Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, and Pan-African Community Action in D.C. are planning for a general strike. In an interview conducted by Lauren Steiner, Kalia Kuno of Cooperation Jackson explains what they're doing. If you're striking in place, to start with the basic. We all have some access to social media. On May 1st, for those who are doing that, take a picture, put it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever other social media you have. State why you are striking. State what your demand that you're in unison with and project that so that we can send a clear message to all those who are monitoring those communications that we are acting in unison with each other and that there are millions of people who are taking this, not just ones and twos, and that we are going to stand in solidarity with each other on the heels of this. Now, you asked a question about is May 1st enough time? We were very clear from the beginning that this is a call towards a general strike. We don't see May 1st as being uh, an ending place, but rather a launching place. And that the broad coalition that we're building, which includes our call, Corona Strike, uh, May 2020, we're now uh, collaborating with each other. And we are going to start calling for and invite everybody who's in earshot of this and and all-inclusive that we know that come the first of every month, there are going to be some real consequences that workers are going to have, be it rent, be it some other credit card debt or some other thing. We know this is going to take place for months, if not years to come. And that we want to make the first of every month a critical point of united action where we all act in unison with each other to send clear demands to the government, to the forces of capital, that it's a new day based upon our organized strength. And this is what we're going to fight for, stand in unity for, and ultimately build together. More information about Cooperation Jackson's call for no work and no shopping on May 1st is at cooperationjackson.org. This is Lydia Curtis for On the Ground. More on left activism in the U.S. in the age of COVID-19 later in the show. But what about the people of Gaza? Chantel James recently reported on Palestinian Prisoners Day and filed this report. For Palestinian Prisoners Day last Friday, Jewish Voice for Peace hosted a virtual rally attended by thousands. 
They came together to show solidarity with those Palestinians incarcerated by Israel, particularly at this time when conditions of incarceration put them at greater risk for COVID-19 infection. Speakers included Mark Lamont Hill, professor of media studies and urban education at Temple University, Mariam Kaba, organizer and educator, the poet Doreen Tatur, and more. Ahed Tamimi, the young Palestinian who herself was incarcerated for eight months after slapping an Israeli soldier in December 2017, appeared with her father Basim and gave these remarks. Hello to everyone. Thank you to everyone here and everyone standing with Palestinians. We have to, as people, to stand and support Palestinian prisoners because our humanity commands us to do so. They aren't treated as humans. They're treated as animals. They give them nothing decent or human. None of them have any basic rights. Israel is denying them all of their rights. There should be freedom for prisoners from all Israeli prisons, especially now because of Corona. They aren't given any treatment or protection. We have to stand and support them right now. Ask for their release. For an action toolkit that provides further resources on how you can make your voice heard for the rights of Palestinian prisoners, visit jvp.org slash prison rally. From Northeast CC, this is Chantal James. And finally, in culture and media, Consortium News editor Joe Loria skewered a front-page Wednesday New York Times article that claimed Chinese agents tried to sow panic in the U.S. with a Facebook post about a potential national lockdown because of the pandemic. Loria points out that this same information appears verbatim in a March 20th Washington Examiner column by veteran columnist Paul Bettard. Similar messages, some giving Bettard attribution appeared on both Facebook and Twitter and on and around March 20th. Now, five days before Bedard's column, the U.S. National Security Council tweeted a statement that these rumors were fake, yet a month later, the proposed plan reported by Bedard has been actually put in place by individual states, instituting their own actual lockdowns, with some calling out the National Guard. The Times article credited six different anonymous sources who declined to reveal details of the intelligence leaking Chinese agents to disinformation dissemination, citing the need to protect sources and methods for monitoring Beijing's activities. Hmm. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. Nations and our people that have been living here for thousands of years. Stand up. We've been fighting for our freedom since the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Stand up. Like Geronimo, Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Lennon Peltier. Stand up. 
Now they poisoning the waters for our sons and our daughters, so we on the frontier. We won. One nation, one cause, one people, one tribe. Now it's us against the pipeline. Get on your feet for standing rock, and we'll show you how strong we could be when we unify. To all my native people, recognize yourself, keep your head This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, on the Empire and War Beat, President Donald Trump tweeted Wednesday morning his instructions to the U.S. Navy to quote-unquote shoot down and destroy any Iranian vessels that harass American warships in the Persian Gulf. And on Thursday, 70 civil society groups representing more than 40 million people called on Trump to end immediately sanctions on numerous countries, including Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Cuba, and North Korea, for at least the duration of the coronavirus crisis. Here to help us unpack issues of U.S. war making during this deadly pandemic is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn, the prolific author of more than three dozen books, most recently Jazz and Justice, Racism, and the Political Economy of the Music. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's start with Iran under those severe U.S. economic sanctions that have taken a heavy toll. But Iran announced Wednesday the launch of their first military satellite, you know, much to the consternation of the Trump administration. So what do you think the launch means for Middle East tensions with the U.S. refusing to remove troops from neighboring Iraq? Well, obviously, we're at a very dangerous moment in world history. It's also a reflection of the fact that Iran is affiliated with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. As its name suggests, China plays a major role in this organization. And though the SCO denies it, in many ways, it's a counterpoint to NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, ostensibly led by the United States of America. And so when you have Mr. Trump issuing these threats, which, by the way, are the mother of all distractions from his ham-fisted attempt to deal with this raging pandemic in the United States of America. When you have him issuing these threats, it brings us closer to conflict. And I say this in particular because there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal just the other day by Walter Russell Meade, who's considered to be a major theoretician, believe it or not, of U.S. foreign policy. And he pointed out that with an economy collapsing, uh, unemployment rates at the level not seen since the Great Depression, with this pandemic killing thousands, that the only issue that Mr. Trump has to run on in November 2020 is bashing China and possibly bashing Iran as well. But particularly China, particularly since just in this past week, you've had the attorney general of the state of Missouri and the attorney general of the state of Mississippi filing lawsuits against China, particularly against the Chinese Communist Party, claiming that through negligence or worse on the part of these Chinese authorities, that this coronavirus was unleashed that did multi-billions of dollars in damage to these state economies. Now, routinely and traditionally, you would expect 
these lawsuits to be dismissed, filed in U.S. courts, by the way, because there's this concept known as sovereign immunity, which also protects the United States in terms of not being sued in Vietnam, for example, or being sued in Grenada or Cuba, for example. But with the right-leaning courts that we have in the United States of America, it's quite possible that this case will not be dismissed, and it could ratchet up further tensions between China and the United States, which is something that Mr. Trump wants because of his flagging electoral chances. In that regard, he's already begun a drumbeat of criticism against the man he now calls Beijing Biden. That is to say, he's suggesting that Mr. Biden and the Democratic Party are soft on communism as a reflection of the old Cold War, and also soft on China. But perhaps even more telling is the fact that those who are lining up to run in 2024, assuming that Mr. Trump decides to step down from office uh, in, after his presumed second term ends in 2024, they're all echoing this particular line. I'm speaking of uh, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, uh, former UN ambassador and governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, uh, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo, who has been more hawkish on China than just about anybody except Vice President Michael Pence, who has become the point man on China. And of course, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who's been beating this drum ever since January of 2020. Now, what's interesting as well is that these tensions are ratcheting up when it's apparent that the United States is dependent upon China for the reagents that are needed for testing. And the U.S. Congress says they want to test tens of thousands, perhaps millions in the United States for this coronavirus. And as well, it's interesting that Mr. Trump oftentimes says that China has cheated the United States out of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, going back to China entering the World Trade Organization a few decades ago. Now, what he omits is the fact that when the United States and China became closer it diplomatically, politically, and financially, this was all part of an arrangement that was aimed at the former Soviet Union. And what's interesting is not only does Trump omit this salient fact, uh, so does the corporate media, because, of course, they supported that deal, as did the Republican Party, by the way. And, of course, much of the U.S. left omits this salient detail as well, perhaps because they're not familiar, perhaps some are guilty because they supported this uh, deal as well. And what's even more interesting about this dilemma that the United States faces with China right now is that like a gang member that has to go through an initiation ritual by giving a beatdown to a third party, I'm afraid to say that China earned its bones with Washington by waging war against Vietnam after the United States' defeat there in 1975. And Vietnam has not forgotten that, even though the war in Vietnam was fought in no small measure on the premise that there was this so-called communism conspiracy that included communist China and communist Vietnam. Right now, one of China's most significant antagonists happens to be Vietnam. You have U.S. warships visiting Vietnam all the time. And interestingly enough, one of the countries with the lowest rates of corona infection happens to be at Vietnam. And I think when 
analysts and public health authorities begin to look at this question, they might come to the conclusion that this is because of Vietnam's overall skepticism towards China, that is to say, uh, blocking Chinese entry to, into the country early on, blocking Chinese flights into Vietnam early on. And this is just part of the calculation that we have to think about when we approach this 2020 election. That is to say, we have a very difficult problem, we of the U.S. left. We have to defeat this anti-China psychosis and drumbeat that Mr. Trump and the Republicans are, are trying to whip up because it also will descend quite easily, as it has thus far, into malignant racism that will jeopardize many of us. And as well, we have to challenge, I'm afraid to say, some in our own community who, in light of the fact that there were these reports coming out of southern China about harassing of Africans in southern China, uh, the idea was put forward, I'm afraid to say, including in Washington, D.C., of harassing Chinese folk in Washington, D.C. and across the United States. So this is the very difficult problem that we have to face as we approach the election of November 2020. Also, I mean, any, any type of anti-communist or anti-socialist rhetoric will also target the left here. And, you know, we witnessed Obama's so-called pivot to Asia and and all of Trump's targeting of China with the so-called trade war. But I've actually never witnessed this type of media frenzy against another country. And it makes me think that what you just said is just so correct, because not even at the height of so-called Russiagate did we hear this kind of ethnic or racial demonizing of a people. And it's obviously deeply col colored by race and racism. Well, in the current issue of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the major periodical in that southern city, there is a story about in downtown Atlanta, throughout downtown Atlanta, there are plaques being put up denouncing the so-called Wuhan virus. Now, I'm not sure who's behind that. Probably the same people who organized these AstroTurf demonstrations in Raleigh, North Carolina and Lansing, Michigan calling for an end to these public health regulations, calling for the economy to be opened up. But once again, it's a dangerous signal. And then there's one more story, too, that I should mention. Uh, I'm sure you know about the story in Common Dreams, which is quite puzzling, which suggested that as early as November 2019, the U.S. intelligence authorities were alerting the U.S. allies about the coming of this coronavirus, Although routinely and traditionally we're told that the coronavirus was not uncovered in China until December 2019. So I'm not sure if you have an answer to that puzzle. Well, we talked about the conflicting narratives from the U.S. versus China about the origins of the virus. And I don't know if we want to call it a mystery or a story that needs to be reported out. And, you know, we really do need to rely on our scientists and people who are, you know, as we speak, uncovering more and more cases that were in the U.S. earlier than the what the U.S. had initially uh, reported. Well, I hope so, because I have to reiterate, this is a very dangerous and perilous moment. And sadly enough, we not only have to face the possibility of elimination from a virus, we may have to face and encounter the possibility of elimination from warmongers. Right. 
Okay, well, I know I can rely on you to to help us keep unpacking this and stay on top of it. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. in four corners, four directions, four colors, and death rides on four horsemen, a black snake with some black tanks, uh, how much money do these companies need to make, they could drop their product but they wanna save a buck, already extracted billions, when is enough enough, I used to be in the oil fields, getting paid, but I quit, cause oil water I can't drink, look down and see Kamimi La die in the mud, I looked up and told myself that enough's enough. Money does not own my soul, living comfortable. It's not in my plans, my hands in the sand. Some things worth more than gold. Some things they can't be sold. Some things can't be replaced. She's your mother. The fresh water is her veins. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And with me to discuss the latest about the coronavirus in the United States and the response from Washington is Dr. Margaret Flowers, a pediatrician and activist for universal health care, who is co-chair of the Green Party of the United States and a member of the Embassy Protectors Collective. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, since we last spoke, there have been major developments in the COVID-19 pandemic. Just this week, an autopsy in Santa Clara, California of a woman who died February 6th revealed that she was positive for the virus, pushing back the date of the first known infection in the U.S. to at least mid-January. Then also this week, researchers revealed that hundreds of thousands of people in Los Angeles County may have been infected with the coronavirus by early April, and this number far outpaces the number of officially confirmed cases. And this is what the Los Angeles Times said, The initial results from the first large-scale study tracking the spread of the coronavirus in the county found that 4.1% of adults have antibodies to the virus in their blood, an indication of past exposure. Then it says that translates to roughly 221,000 to 442,000 adults who have recovered from an infection once the margin of error is taken into account according to the researchers. And then the county had reported fewer than 8,000 cases at that time. So we're talking about 8,000 compared to 221,000 to 442,000. And it seems to me that these types of updates are just really damning indictments of the lack of testing and almost the uselessness of these official numbers that we're getting about cases. Yeah, that's correct. You know, the United States was so slow and it's still slow to get, you know, testing out. And that's like foundational to understanding a pandemic. These study results are in line with other studies we've seen. The University of Texas at Austin also estimated that we're only documenting about 10% of the cases. So that actually it's more likely that there's 10 times more cases than what the numbers are saying. So 
it is important when we look at these official numbers that we understand it in this context, that this is widespread in our communities, that, you know, majority of people, half to 75% of people who are positive with COVID-19 don't show any symptoms. And that's what kind of makes this virus so dangerous and so much more of a powerful as a pandemic because people are walking around traveling, potentially infecting other people without them knowing that they're doing that. When people hear about uh, so many people in Los Angeles County, for example, having the antibodies, they may feel like, well, is that what they're talking about when they say herd immunity or is this something else? This is something else. When they're talking about herd immunity, what that refers to is that so many people in a population have gotten the disease that it can't really be spread through that population and the other proportion that haven't gotten it are protected. But when you're talking about herd immunity, you're talking about very high percentage of people that are infected, like 70, 75, 90%. In this situation, we're talking about 2 or 4% of people that have gotten the disease. And we don't want to encourage herd immunity because, you know, what that actually means in terms of like just naturally having people get the disease, this virus is still very new. So we don't know over time with more cases, the virus may evolve and change and become more severe. Uh, We don't know about the long lasting effects. There's some indications that people have ongoing problems with lung disease after the infection. So there's a lot of reasons why we want to contain this and not allow it to spread in communities. Yeah. And so I know that last week, New York added the likely COVID cases to their total number of deaths, right? But these new tests make me wonder, you know, what about nationally? You know, if people aren't even tracking the cases, you know, people could die at home in Los Angeles County, for example. People could say, oh, she had pneumonia. But if it's not like in Santa Clara, where they're actually uh, using a test to test the corpse, they don't know. Right. Well, it was interesting because in New York City, which is, you know, the the epicenter of the infection globally, they had this huge increase in the number of people that were dying at home. They were having, you know, 200 or so people a day where they normally have around 15 to 25. And so they were saying that, you know, they didn't have enough tests or the capacity. They were just struggling even to be able to the emergency medical system just to be able to retrieve the people that had died at home, much less having the ability to test them for COVID-19. And that's why New York increased those numbers under the kind of assumption that these people were dying from it. You know, there was an interesting article from an emergency medicine doctor describing the fact that people are coming in with symptoms to the hospital that don't, you know, they aren't the typical COVID-19 symptoms, but then they test them, they do CAT scans of their lungs, test them, and they find that they actually have COVID-19 pneumonia. We're also learning that COVID-19 attacks not just the lungs, but goes after the heart, the kidneys, the liver. So, you know, this is still a new virus, and we're still learning a lot about it. Right. And I heard another report, it might have been on Democracy Now!, talking about the fact that You just mentioned people presenting in in many different ways that they're finding that blood clots are a big factor that they didn't realize instead of classic symptoms of pneumonia. Right. Yeah. It's a very unusual pneumonia because another thing that they're finding is that people's oxygen levels are falling really low and they're not experiencing the, the typical symptoms that you would have when your oxygen gets that low. Typically, when people's oxygen in their blood becomes very low, 
the same time their carbon dioxide goes up because the lungs aren't working. They aren't bringing oxygen in and pushing the carbon dioxide out. But in this pneumonia, the carbon dioxide levels are, are normal, but people have extremely low you know, blood oxygen, and that causes damage to other organs. But there's other ways that the organs are damaged through the immune system overreacting as well and attacking those organs. So, it's, you know, there's, it's a very interesting virus. And people are dying from, you know, from heart attacks with this. Yeah. And those of us who have pre-existing, you know, murmurs and other type of heart conditions, it can be really scary because you, you don't know. And with no tests available, you don't know if you're being impacted or not. You may not be coughing, you may not be sneezing, but if this virus is attacking people in other ways, it just, it makes all of us very vulnerable. But this research is being released, you know, as the Trump administration continues to argue that it's not responsible, that the federal government is not responsible to supply widespread availability of tests. And several Southern governors are opening up their states for business, businesses like gyms, salons, barbershops, and from your perspective, you know, what has to happen to increase the availability of tests? And what's your reaction to some states opening up businesses? Yeah, first to go to the point, Trump saying the government is not responsible. Well, then what is the government actually supposed to do? You know, in the United States, unfortunately, the government seems to only be there to serve the interests of the wealthy. But in most countries, governments are there to serve the interests of the people. And so the government should definitely be getting these tests and getting them out to all the states where they're needed. Before we start to, you know, reopen businesses and schools and things like that, we have to have a structure in place. And there's many different groups that are calling for this. We need to do what countries, other countries did that have effectively slowed the spread and contained the virus. And that is we need public health education. We need easy, free screening where people can go if they're concerned that they might have it and get tested. If somebody tests positive, you need to have a team in place that can then contact that person, make sure they're isolated, monitor their health, find out who all of their other contacts were and test them. The way that we control this is by identifying who's positive, identifying whether they're infectious or not, and then containing them until they are no longer infectious. Otherwise, Letting people go back out into the communities unprotected is just going to escalate the number of cases to a degree that will be mind boggling and overwhelm our healthcare system. So, you know, actually, you're talking about people going back out. Last week, we played a little audio of some of the demonstrators, protesters out in Michigan calling for just that. One woman saying, you know, she wanted to get her hair cut. So there's that aspect. But these figures are coming out and this new research is coming out at the same time that there is obviously a new bipartisan and corporate media cold war on China happening in terms of where the virus was first identified. And I first noticed it on, on what is kind of the new media darling rising produced by the Hill on YouTube, uh, one of the co-hosts, Sagar and Jetty. And he holds down the right flank on the show opposite the leftist crystal ball. But they seem to both endorse the idea that Trump's attack on the World Health Organization could be warranted. And the fact that the World Health Organization, you know, like covered up for China. So I want to pay just a little piece of that. And 
get your reaction to it because there is a narrative, there is a timeline for what happened, but there are people creating a, a new narrative. It is very clear there are two separate things that the WHO did absent even maybe the cover-up of whether the escape of this disease from the lab, which is, one, they advised against travel bans publicly in early January. And number two, they advised against, they explicitly said there was no evidence in mid-January of human-to-human contact of the coronavirus. We know that to be completely false. We know that on January 14th, according to the Associated Press, that the Chinese government knew about human-to-human contact, knew that coronavirus was likely to go pandemic. And that between January 14th and January 20th, six key days that by doing nothing, they ensured a, go- a worldwide conflagration of this virus. That is empirical. Yeah. And the WHO has been complicit with that organization from the beginning. That was Sagar and Jetty, co-hosts of Rising, a show on YouTube. And you're kind of repeating this narrative that's repeated over and over now in right wing and just regular corporate media that creates a different narrative about what China did in the early days of detection of the virus. And we know that China immediately sequenced the virus, released that information, not only to the World Health Organization, but worldwide. And whatever it knew at that time, it released. But now you see this new full-throated effort to not only blame China, but criminalize China. So Dr. Margaret Flowers, give me your take on this uptick in, in this type of rhetoric. Well, I think hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? We've had, and China has experienced a number of outbreaks of viruses that caused epidemics. And, you know, when this was first reported in late December, Nobody really knew. They didn't know what it was that was causing it at first, and then they were able to isolate that it was a coronavirus and then find out that it was a new strain of the coronavirus, and they didn't know anything about it. This was a completely new entity. And so even when they started to see perhaps, you know, some cases of human-to-human transmission, you don't want to start, you know, hitting the panic button until you know for sure. So I, I can't say what happened, you know, during that time period, but I would say that if you look at the overall picture, China acted swiftly to, they have had a system in place to identify when something unusual happened, and then the ability to take the steps to, to follow up and find out. I think if, you know, people in the United States are looking at someone to criticize, we should really be, our responsibility as people who live in the United States, we should be looking at our own government. Our government has failed miserably in this situation and continues to fail miserably with not providing our states with the resources that they need, with not providing people who are being required to stay at home for their health with the resources that they need in order to still pay their mortgages, pay their rent, have food, pay their energy bills, all these kinds of things. So I don't understand this whole focus on China, a country that has effectively contained the virus instead of actually looking right here at home, which is where we should be criticizing. You know, I want to kind of bring it full circle. And I know this may be controversial, but I'm not trying to be conspiratorial at all. I'm I'm just trying to deal as a layperson with what I understand to be the facts. Now, if we are finding cases that we didn't know existed before, because, for example, this case in Santa Clara in California, of the woman who died February 6th, that tells me two things. We don't know who had the virus 
in the United States at what time? And it says to me that there could be even earlier cases. And it says to me that based on certain flu, unusual flu types happening late last year, that we don't know if the virus was here even in this country last year. Because we don't even have the test now. And we don't even have an ability to test and determine what is regular pneumonia and what is the coronavirus. So I'm looking at this like China is where it first emerged and was identified. But since we didn't even identify it until recently, we don't know who had the virus here. So that's just how I feel. I guess I would say that, you know, even in China, they are questioning how early it actually started there and were there actually cases in October or November, but that they didn't get severe enough that they presented to the hospital, you know, and then were identified as something unusual. So we don't really know how long this virus has been in humans. I would say in the United States, there is data because our flu season was kind of waning, you know, in February. And there was, they're finding, McClatchy did a report on this, cases of deaths from pneumonia and cases of pneumonia that were not flu. So the coronavirus is not a flu virus. It's it's another kind of virus. Right. And so they, these were people who had pneumonia. They were tested for the flu and they were negative, but they didn't have the COVID-19 test at that point. And so now they're looking back and saying, hey, we think that these people were actually dying of COVID-19. So it seems like it was in the U.S., you know, earlier than what we first thought. And that makes sense because people were still traveling early, you know, and late December, early January. And there's a lag between when people are exposed to it and when they start to show symptoms. And that can be weeks. Right. Okay. Well, this is rapidly developing week by week and the next time we talk there'll be new facts and and research to sort through but as of now the United States remains the epicenter of the pandemic and I think more than 45,000 people dead at this point and this finger pointing at China is continuing to try to make excuses for the poor response of the United States and to target not only uh a socialist country or a communist country, but also uh, a people of color to target Chinese people. Right. I agree with you. And it's, and it's causing a really terrible backlash against Asians here in the United States. And that's what we should really be focused on stopping that as well. Right. Okay. Well, I'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Dr. Margaret Flowers, a pediatrician and activist for universal health care, who is co-chair of the green party of the United States. And I wanted to add that uh, a member of the Embassy Protectors Collective that was actually prosecuted after safeguarding Venezuela's embassy here in Washington, D.C. And I thank her for joining the show. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, organizing on the left was on the upswing in the months before COVID-19 struck. Rallies against the threat of U.S. wars and militarism, fire drill Fridays for the climate crisis, support of immigrants, and of course, there were many massive rallies for the Bernie Sanders movement. But all street action has been shut down by COVID-19 precisely at the moment when millions of us are facing economic crisis, when the complete failure of capitalism has been laid bare. We don't have any tests for COVID-19. People don't have health care and there's no protective gear for healthcare workers. And into this vacuum, there have been these new street actions being filled by these rallies to open up the economy. And we found out in the last week that a lot of these rallies are orchestrated by right-wing operatives, and some of these folks have connections with the Trump campaign. Well, with me to discuss these issues and just organizing on the left in this new era of COVID-19 is Yasmin Marabet, co-founder of community organization Link Up, which works with residents and tenant associations in D.C. and Baltimore, organizing against slumlords, mass displacement, and gentrification. She's a core organizer for the National Day of Car Protests to demand cancel the rents happening on Saturday, April 25th. Welcome to On the Ground, Yasmina. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this feels like a real pivotal moment for organizing right now and also long-term organizing for people around issues like housing and labor. So what's your take on this moment? I think that we have entered a period of intensifying class struggle and hundreds of strikes have taken place in the last four weeks in almost all sectors where essential workers are on the front line. And most of these have been wildcat strikes, not organized by unions or by the left. So there's an indicator that the class struggle is going to grow and grow and grow. And both the unions and the left, the socialist left, will find fertile ground for the message that the problem is not just, you know, with this company, that company, this bank, or that city government. The problem is with the capitalist system as a whole. And so for the Party for Socialism and Liberation and other leftists, we have been engaged in online organizing since the pandemic led to the shutdown. And now on April 25th, we're going from online organizing to being back in the streets but we're going to be doing it unlike the right-wing semi-fascist protests that have not been conforming to social distancing guidelines. Our caravans around the country will correspond to these guidelines because it's crucial that the pandemic is not facilitated by the kinds of reckless actions that we've seen the right-wing engage in. Right. The April 25th car caravan is actually part of, I guess, more than a week of actions that people are kind of calling like from Earth Day to May Day. On Wednesday, there was a lot of virtual activism marking the 50th anniversary of Earth Day and the destruction of our environment by corporations that are still, even during a pandemic, more intent on their profits than people's health and the air that we breathe, the water that we drink. So I'm wondering about what seems to often to be a very siloed nature of left organizing. And and what do you think about the prospects for these diverse movements from the environment to labor to housing and council the rents, the prospects for these movements coming together during this time? I think the prospects are really high. I mean, in the next month, our unemployment rate is going to be at like 30 percent. 
the thing is that this five or six trillion dollars that's being redistributed from the people to the banks and the corporations in the name of a fiscal stimulus package that is affecting people across the board, across social divisions, across borders. It's something that really exposes the contradictions of capitalism and workers can come together in a necessary way because if not, then the vacuum is going to be filled by the fascist demagogues that are part of the right wing of the Republican Party who we've seen already go into the streets. But, you know, it's imperative that the alternative of organized progressive forces be a growing force in society. Otherwise, the direction that we're going in, I mean, it's pretty clear. So the economist Richard Wolf was on the show two weeks ago, and he told us that this is kind of a new Great Depression. He made the point that this isn't a downturn. This isn't a rough patch. He said he wanted to use the term, this is a new Great Depression. And so it made me think about comparing what's happening right now to what happened in terms of organizing by the left and the right in the 30s. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, in terms of the 30s, this depression is already greater. I mean, I mentioned that, the, you know, in the next month, the unemployment rate will be at 30%. And at the height of the depression in the 30s, it was 25%. Right. So millions of small businesses will be wiped out and never come back. So a fighting left, an organization of the working class, you know, fighting with a socialist program can and I think will grow very rapidly. You know, in that sense, it's comparable to what happened with the left in the 1930s. Things that seemed impossible before they were granted, like Social Security and unemployment insurance, were made possible because workers went on general strikes. They seized factories and sit-down strikes and concessions were made for demands that prior to those actions seemed like utopian, you know, unrealistic demands. So, you know, I think the message of this time is that if we fight, all kinds of concessions, you know, will be made that would have seemed impossible. So, you know, fighting can ultimately lead to victory. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And speaking of of those types of demands, uh, it's very interesting that this pandemic is happening at the same time that the Democratic Party pretty much defeated Bernie Sanders' call for Medicare for all, a, a reform that even though it was supported by most people when they were polled in the Democratic Party, not only in the Democratic Party, but most Americans when they're polled, they are for Medicare for all. So what do you see in terms of the pressure that can be put on these corporate Democrats to at least adopt these types of reforms like canceling rent and mortgage and giving people Medicare for all right now for survival. Yeah. I mean, this is the time that they need to feel the pressure because this is the time that the pressure is being placed, you know, on the workers, whether they're frontline workers or they lost their jobs or whatever. You know, for the caravan action that's taking place on Saturday the 25th around the country, the demands are things that impact all aspects of our lives. Immediate cancellation of all rents and mortgages for homeowners, small landlords, small businesses for the duration of the pandemic. Cancellation of all gas and electricity payments, clearing the shelters and immediately housing those that need to be housed. Stop the the tax cuts to D.C. corporations and provide housing for those who are incarcerated and full citizenship rights for all undocumented immigrant workers and their families. 
I think that these demands correspond to demands that we had prior to the pandemic. It's just that the pandemic has resulted in, you know, all of these things being intensified. And so because everything is intensified, I mean, there's going to be a growing and intense need for workers to take action to secure their necessary rights. And I think that that's what we've been seeing happening, and that's what's going to continue to grow. Okay. Well, I do know that the corporate media has played a major role in the public's perception and just basically what the public knows about the viability of people to take action, to have kind of agency in their own lives. And I'm curious to know what you think about the coverage of these these protests to open up businesses. It seems like they've gotten a lot of coverage. It reminds me of how there there would be like just a small uh, protest of the Tea Party, you know, back in uh, <laughs> in the yeah. o- Obama's first term. And you know, there could be less than fifty, less than twenty people out with signs and you know, spitting on you know black lawmakers and doing whatever they're doing. And it got major coverage. And a lot more coverage than I saw, like anti, you know, huge anti-war protests getting. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts about the the role of corporate media in this time of messaging about Trump versus a more systemic analysis of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't watch a lot of corporate media, (laughs) but I do, you know, watch some of those daily shows or on the TV in the background. And I noticed that you know, when they're talking, they're more so talking to an audience that is of a wealthier class, like more to the people who are, you know, housed safely in their homes. Maybe they're able to telework. They're still getting paid their full salaries. You know, they've had to adjust their lives, but they're not really facing the immediate struggles that a lot of people are facing. So I think that the media has played a role of kind of constantly talking about it and talking about how it can be serious for some people, but then also even like making light of the situation at different times. And I just think that the realities and the hardships of everyday life are going to be what prompts people to take action. And I don't think that the media can do anything to change somebody's mind who just lost their job and can't pay their mortgage and is about to get evicted from their home. You know what I mean? Like, I think that in that sense, the media will have less influence over those who are facing immediate hardships as a result of the pandemic. Right. Okay, well, we can leave it there. I want to remind people about the action on April 25th. That is the National Day of Car Protests to demand cancel the rents. And here in D.C., they're meeting at 12 noon at the Carter Barron, the Carter Barron Amphitheater, and that's 4850 Colorado Avenue Northwest in Washington, D.C. And uh, the D.C. protest is just one of many around the country. And I believe the website is canceltherents.org, right, Yasmina? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah, yeah. can you can find out about a rally in your area at canceltherents.org. I've been speaking with Yasmin Marabit, co-founder of the community organization Link Up, which works with residents and tenant associations in D.C. and Baltimore organizing against slumlords, mass displacement, and gentrification. 
She's a core organizer for that National Day of Car Protests that we just mentioned to cancel the rents happening on Saturday, April 25th. Thank you for joining me today, Yasmina. Thank you for having me. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke. And a special greeting and welcome to our newest listeners at WESU Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. And a heads up to our listeners in Washington, D.C., we will not be on the air on May 1st, May Day, which is our sixth anniversary, actually, on WPFW. But you can check out our May Day coverage on our website that day, May 1st, at onthegroundshow.org, beginning at our regular broadcast time at 10 a.m. in D.C. And if you listen on podcasts, look out for our new podcast on iTunes and Google Play. The graphic will have a picket sign with green letters that say on the ground, and you'll be able to hear our May Day broadcast on that new format. Of course, everyone can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And you can support us on patreon.com forward slash On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Stand Up, Stand In Rock, No Dapple by Taboo with Superman, Dresses, Spencer Battius, PJ Vegas, and MC1. Black Snakes by Prolific The Rapper. And If I Rule The World by Nas with Lauren Hill. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>